Chapter Twenty Four of Indiana. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mary Herndon Bell. Indiana by George Sand. Translated by George Burnham Ives. Chapter Twenty Four. Madame Delmar's home had become more peaceable, however. With their false friends had disappeared many of the difficulties which, under the fostering hand of those officious meddlers, had been envenomed with all the warmth of their zeal. Sir Ralph, with his silence and his apparent non-interference, was more skilful than all of them in letting drop those airy trifles of intimate companionship which float about in the favoring breeze of pleasant gossip but indiana lived almost alone her house was in the mountains above the town and monsieur delmar who had a warehouse in the port went down every morning for the whole day to superintend his business with the indies and with france sir ralph who had no other home than theirs but who found ways to add to their comfort without their suspecting his gifts devoted himself to the study of natural history or to superintending the plantation indiana resuming the easy-going habits of creole life passed the scorching hours of the day in her straw chair and the long evenings in the solitude of the mountains bourbon is in truth simply a huge cone the base of which is about forty leagues in circumference while its gigantic mountain peaks rise to the height of ten thousand feet from almost every part of that imposing mass the eye can see in the distance beyond the beetling rocks beyond the narrow valleys and stately forests the unbroken horizon surrounding the azure-hued sea like a girdle from her window indiana could see between the twin peaks of a wooded mountain opposite that on which their house was built the white sails on the indian ocean during the silent hours of the day that spectacle attracted her eyes and gave to her melancholy a fixed and uniform tinge of despair that splendid sight made her musings bitter and gloomy instead of casting its poetical influence upon them and she would lower the curtain that hung at her window and shun the very daylight in order to shed bitter scalding tears in the secrecy of her heart but when the land breeze began to blow toward evening and to bring to her nostrils the fragrance of the flowering rice fields she would go forth into the wilderness leaving delmar and ralph on the veranda to enjoy the aromatic infusion of the fahim and to loiter over their cigars she would climb to the top of some accessible peak the extinct crater of a former volcano and gaze at the setting sun as it kindled the red vapors of the atmosphere into flame and spread a sort of dust of gold and rubies over the murmuring stalks of the sugar-cane and the glistening walls of the cliff she rarely went down into the gorges of the saint gilles river because the sight of the sea, although it distressed her, fascinated her with its magnetic mirage. It seemed to her that beyond those waves and that distant haze the magic apparition of another land would burst upon her gaze. Sometimes the clouds on the shore assumed strange forms in her eyes. At one time she would see a white wave rise upon the ocean and describe a gigantic line which she took for the façade of the Louvre again two square sails would emerge suddenly from the mist 
and recall to her mind the towers of notre dame at paris when the seine sends up a dense mist which surrounds their foundations and leaves them as if suspended in the sky at other times there were patches of pink clouds which in their changing shapes imitated all the caprices of architecture in a great city that woman's mind slumbered in the illusions of the past and she would quiver with joy at the sight of that magnificent paris whose realities were connected with the most unhappy period of her life a curious sort of vertigo would take possession of her brain standing at a great height above the shore and watching the gorges that separated her from the ocean recede before her eyes it seemed as if she were flying swiftly through space toward the fascinating city of her imagination dreaming thus she would cling to the rock against which she was leaning and to one who had at such times seen her eager eyes her bosom heaving with impatient longing and the horrifying expression of joy on her face she would have seemed to manifest all the symptoms of madness and yet those were her hours of pleasure the only moments of well-being to which she looked forward hopefully during the day if her husband had taken it into his head to forbid these solitary walks i do not know what thoughts she would have lived upon for in her everything centered in a certain faculty of inventing illusions in an eager striving toward a point which was neither memory nor anticipation nor hope nor regret but longing in all its devouring intensity thus she lived for weeks and months beneath the tropical sky recognizing loving caressing but one shade cherishing but one chimera ralph for his part was attracted to gloomy secluded spots in his walks where the wind from the sea could not reach him for the sight of the ocean had become as antipathetic to him as the thought of crossing it again france held only an accursed place in his heart's memory there it was that he had been unhappy to the point of losing courage accustomed as he was to unhappiness and patient with his misery he strove with all his might to forget it for although he was intensely disgusted with life he wished to live as long as he should feel that he was necessary he was very careful therefore never to utter a word relating to the time he had passed in that country what would he not have given to tear that ghastly memory from madame delmar's mind but he had so little confidence of his ability he felt that he was so awkward so lacking in eloquence that he avoided her instead of trying to divert her thoughts in the excess of his delicate reserve he continued to maintain the outward appearance of indifference and selfishness he went off and suffered alone and to see him scouring woods and mountains in pursuit of birds and insects one would have taken him for a naturalist sportsman engrossed by his innocent passion and utterly indifferent to the passions of the heart that were stirring in his neighborhood and yet hunting and study were merely the pretext behind which he concealed his long and bitter reveries this conical island is split at the base on all sides and conceals in its embrasures deep gorges through which flow pure and turbulent streams one of these gorges is called bernica it is a picturesque spot a sort of deep and narrow valley hidden between two perpendicular walls of rock the surface of which is studded with clumps of saxatile shrubs and tufts of ferns a stream flows in the narrow trough formed by the meeting of the two sides 
At the point where they meet, it plunges down into frightful depths, and where it falls, forms a basin surrounded by reeds and covered with a damp mist. Around its banks and along the edges of the tiny stream fed by the overflow of the basin grow bananas and oranges, whose dark and healthy green clothe the inner walls of the gorge. Thither Ralph fled to avoid the heat and companionship. All his walks led to that favorite goal. The cool, monotonous plash of the waterfall lulled his melancholy to sleep. When his heart was torn by the secret agony so long concealed, so cruelly misunderstood, it was there that he expended in unknown tears, in silent lamentations, the useless energy of his heart and the concentrated activity of his youth. In order that you may understand Ralph's character, it will be well to tell you that at least half of his life had been passed in the depths of that ravine. Thither he had gone in his early childhood, to steel his courage against the injustice with which he had been treated in his family. It was there that he had put forth all the energies of his soul to endure the destiny arbitrarily imposed upon him, and that he had acquired the habit of stoicism which he had carried to such a point that it had become a second nature to him. There, too, in his youth, he had carried little Indiana on his shoulders. He had laid her on the grass by the stream while he fished in the clear water, or tried to scale the cliff in search of birds' nests. The only dwellers in that solitude were the gulls, petrels, coots, and sea-swallows. Those birds were incessantly flying up and down, hovering overhead or circling about, having chosen the holes and clefts in those inaccessible walls to rear their wild broods. Toward night they would assemble in restless groups and fill the echoing gorge with their hoarse, savage cries. Ralph liked to follow their majestic flight, to listen to their melancholy voices. He taught his little pupil their names and their habits. He showed her the lovely Madagascar teal, with its orange breast and emerald back. He bade her admire the flight of the red-winged tropic bird, which sometimes strays through these regions, and flies in a few hours from Mauritius to Rodriguez, whither, after a journey of two hundred leagues, it returns to sleep under the veloutier in which its nest is hidden. The petrel, harbinger of the tempest, also spread its tapering wings over those cliffs. And the queen of the sea, the frigate-bird, with its forked tail, its slate-colored coat, and its jagged beat, which lights so rarely that it would seem that the air is its country and constant movement its nature, raised its cry of distress above all the rest. These wild inhabitants were apparently accustomed to seeing the two children playing about the dwellings, for they hardly condescended to take fright at their approach, and when Ralph reached the shelf on which they had installed their families, they would rise in black clouds and light, as if in derision, a few feet above him. Indiana would laugh at their evolutions, and would carry home, carefully in her hat of rice straw, the eggs which Ralph had succeeded in stealing for her, and for which he had often to fight stoutly against powerful blows from the wings of the great amphibious creatures. These memories rushed tumultuously to Ralph's mind, but they were extremely bitter to him, for times had changed greatly, and the little girl who had always been his companion had ceased to be his friend, or at all events was no longer his friend as formerly, in absolute simpleness of heart. 
although she returned his affection his devotion his regard there was one thing that prevented any confidence between them one memory upon which all the emotions of their lives turned as upon a pivot ralph felt that he could not refer to it he had ventured to do it once on a day of danger and his bold act had availed nothing to recur to it now would be nothing more than cold-blooded barbarity and ralph had made up his mind to forgive raymond the man for whom he had less esteem than for any man on earth rather than to add to indiana's sorrow by condemning him according to his own ideas of what justice demanded so he held his peace and even avoided her although living under the same roof he had managed so that he hardly saw her except at meals and yet he watched over her like a mysterious providence he left the house only when the heat confined her to her hammock but at night when she had gone out he would invent an excuse for leaving delmar on the veranda and would go and wait for her at the foot of the cliffs where he knew she was in the habit of sitting he would remain there whole hours sometimes gazing at her through the branches upon which the moon cast its white light but respecting the narrow space which separated them and never venturing to shorten her sad reverie by an instant when she came down into the valley she always found him on the edge of a little stream along which ran the path to the house several broad flat stones around which the water rippled in silver threads served him as a seat when indiana's white dress appeared on the bank ralph would rise silently offer her his arm and take her back to the house without speaking to her unless indiana being more discouraged and depressed than usual herself opened the conversation then when he had left her he would go to his own room and wait until the whole house was asleep before going to bed if he heard delmar scolding ralph would grasp the first pretext that came to his mind to go to him and would succeed in pacifying him or diverting his thoughts without ever allowing him to suspect that such was his purpose the construction of the house which was transparent so to speak compared with the houses in our climate and the consequent necessity of being always under the eyes of everybody else compelled the colonel to put more restraint upon his temper ralph's inevitable appearance at the slightest sound to stand between him and his wife forced him to keep a check upon himself for delmar had sufficient self-esteem to retain control of himself before that acute but stern censor and so he waited until the hour for retiring had delivered him from his judge before venting the ill-humor which business vexations had heaped up during the day but it was of no avail the secret influence kept vigil with him and at the first harsh word at the first loud tone that was audible through the thin partitions the sound of moving furniture or of somebody walking about as if by accident in ralph's room seemed to impose silence on him and to warn him that the silent and patient solicitude of indiana's protector was not asleep End of chapter twenty four